All right. Well, so good to see you all here. Wow, this is so good. This is a, I just ran down the hallway. That's fun. Should make more copies next time. Um, I am Pastor Josh, and this is Wednesday Night Bible Study here at Grace Family Church Waters Campus. So I want to welcome you all here. I know there's some new faces, so we're really excited to have you. And some familiar faces, we're always excited to have you back. So find a table, grab some questions. Yeah, still catch my breath. I got to spend a little bit more time on that treadmill. Let's open a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your love, your mercy, and your grace. We thank you for this time that we can get into your word, that it be nourishment to our souls, that we can learn more about you, that we can learn more about Jesus, that we can find the truth and know that it sets us free. Lord, I just pray that you open our ears and our hearts to receive your word. Lord, I just pray that this conversation tonight enrich us and draw us closer to you. Lord, it weeds out the sin and brings forth good fruit. Come, Holy Spirit, speak through me because I cannot do this without you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, just so we're all on the same page, we are at Wednesday night Bible study. Yes? Yes. All right, for the next 12 weeks... We are going to be studying a passage of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. It is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I read from the ESV, so the English Standard Version. Whatever translation you have, whether it be the NIV or the NLT or the New King James, or if you're old school King James, you are welcome here because that little bit of diversity will help us break down and understand God's Word. So if you have a paper Bible, i.e. printed, you're welcome to pull that out to Matthew chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible at all, there's a sheet that I printed for verses 1 through 16, so we can all follow along. And if you're 21st century, go ahead and pull out your e-Bibles, because those are equally the Word of God, just even a little faster. And I'm going to read from Matthew Chapter 5, verse 1 through 16, and then we're going to dive into it. You ready? Good. Seeing the crowd, he went up on this mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed be the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed be those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you or persecute you or utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
verse 13, it says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Praise be to God. All right, so we have what is possibly the longest recorded sermon in Scripture, going from verses five, chapters 5 through 7. And really quick, we, we want to look at the objective that Jesus is trying to accomplish. And, and the Jewish people in the first century were under a great load of spiritual righteousness. Even later on, Jesus says, unless your righteousness is as good as or above the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, because they wanted to get the law just right, because they knew there was only two ways to go to heaven. You had to be spiritually righteous. It means you never broke a law, or you had to offer a sacrifice on the altar for the blood of that animal to pay the price of your sins. Is that everyone with me? And so since Moses, there was over 2,000 years of this religious practice where people were either sacrificing or trying to keep the law. But when there are 613 laws to keep, much like driving, you can't keep them all, right? And, and so all of a sudden, these people who really want to see God and really want to know God can't because of their uncleanness, their sin, they have been separated from God. And not only that, they've been put under this pressure by the Pharisees to act and live a certain way that they could not do. And I think this sermon is God's way of wanting, Jesus' way, God's way, of wanting to clear the air of what God really wants. Does that make sense? Does that, does that help us see where I think Jesus is coming from? And so with this, he starts out with that, the most important, or probably the most famous section of the Bible of the Beatitude. And we have, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we see this word blessed. Now, we live in an age where what? We, we see hashtag blessed. Right, where, where we, we talk, see people talking about how blessed they are. And, and I think it's, it's a beautiful thing because they use the word, and I think they mean it on a level higher than just being happy. But are they truly blessed? What, what does the world's definition of blessed is, oh, today went well, it didn't rain, my hair stayed in place, my car didn't get a scratch, I didn't run a ga gas, my boss was nice to me, my kids were well-behaved. I have a blessed life, right? But is that God's definition of being blessed? I don't think it is. The, the actual definition of being blessed, it is actually resting in God's 
favor and provision. So being blessed, a blessing is by definition resting in God's favor and provision. That's what it means to be biblically blessed. Okay? You don't have to turn there, but and what I did is if I give a scripture reference, I put it at the bottom of the question. So everything that I'm going to reference is already written down. So you don't have to worry about running around and writing down my references. I did the homework for you. But Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, we have that famous verse that we see all the athletes wear and all the superstars wear. Philippians 4, 13 says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Have you heard that before? Everyone nod your head, yes, because we probably have. But Paul starts verse 11 saying, For I have learned the secret of contentment. I have been in plenty, and I have been in want. I have been lifted up high, and I have been brought down low. And I have learned to be content in all these things because I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So I think that is a good scripture reference to a blessing where you know that no matter the situation of your life, and Lord knows that right after this hurricane, we've been watching the devastation coming out of the Bahamas. And and I saw that Dennis Phillips, the news reporter or weatherman, he said, the wind strength of Doreen at 220 miles an hour had the same effect of a cap four or five, whatever, the measurement of a tornado that was six miles wide for 24 hours. And that is the amount of devastation that was brought upon this little bitty island. Now, if you were able to survive that, would you be able to say that you are blessed based on world standards? On world standards? No, (laughs) no. But if your truth and your faith rests in God, knowing that he loves you and that no matter how high life is or how low it goes, that he was with you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter how hard the suffering that you are, and that he is right there with you and he gives you that comfort and peace, by that definition, would you say that your life is blessed? Yes. And that is what Jesus is trying to have us see. He wants us to look through that lens that his grace is sufficient for us. That his presence for us is truly what it means to be blessed. That his pouring out of love and mercy and grace, no matter the situation, is his love for us. I wrote this out. It says, to be blessed is to rest in the grace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter the situation. The blessing that is reassured that Jesus is enough, I have need nothing else. His love for me, his everlasting kindness, his mercy poured out upon me, even when I sin and fall short of his glory. So no matter what happens around me or to me, I am blessed. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 27, 1, For my God is my rock and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And so I want us to take that definition into the Beatitudes. All right, so blessed are the poor in spirit. 
This is us recognizing as a believer that we are unable to save ourselves. We are not supermen or women. We are unable, without God's help, to do anything. That we are so poor and lowly in spirit that it takes a great God to bring us out of the muck and the mire. And this is the, the attitude that Jesus wants his listeners to have. That they can't do it on their own righteousness. That they cannot be good enough for God. That there's no amount of good works they can perform that would make God happy and satisfied. But it takes a person with a lowly spirit to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so that's our challenge for each and every one of us in this room. And we cannot move further than this point until we are sure that we need a savior. Have we come to that point where we recognize for real that I am not capable of doing this on my own? Because so many of us try to live the American dream and do it our way, like the great Frank Sinatra song, right? I did it my way. But how far has our way gotten? The reality is it hasn't gotten us very far. Or if anything, we have climbed that ladder to get to the top to realize that we are climbing up the wrong building. So are we poor in spirit? Are we at that point in our lives where we go, God, I am a great sinner and I'm in need of a great savior. Some of us in this room, I believe we have gotten there and we have repented and we're moving forward. And I think some of us aren't too sure yet, but I want to propose that for all of us, that it does not take your good works or your good attitudes or your right words or your right dress or proper church attendance or anything like that to earn God's favor, but to simply recognize that we are not able to do it ourselves. Blessed are those who mourn. I think sometimes we, we look at this as saying, well, I've just got, had a terrible life situation happen to me, so I'm sad and God's going to comfort me. Yes, it, it is that. I, I do believe that we are able to look at this verse and say, God is near the brokenhearted. But when we begin to look at the verse preceding it, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, needing, meaning I need a savior, blessed are those who mourn, are recognizing their sin condition and that they need a savior. And in their mourning, God comes to them, as it says in Romans 8, 1, and I didn't write that one down, but Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right, it's, it's to believe that in Christ there is no guilt, there is no shame, there is only forgiveness. And so that is what takes our mourning to joy. That is where our satisfaction and our completement and our contentment rest, is in knowing that Christ has paid it all for me. Blessed are those who are meek. Those are the people who know that they have power, but don't use it. Those are the people who have the authority, but don't exercise it. They have the strength, but underutilize it. 
There's actually the reference from it, if you look, is Psalms uh, 37, verse 11. That's actually Jesus quoting scripture from the Psalms, Psalms 37, 11. It says, blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I love this passage, and I use this all the time when it comes to prayer and fasting. Because it is truly in the season where we are fasting food, not TV, not social media, not video games, not sugar, but food, where our bodies come to a place where it is truly hungry. And there is a part in us that begins to cringe because we are thirsty and we are hungry. Psalm 63 verse 1 reads like this. I might be able to read it. Psalms 63 verse 1. It says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in dry and weary land where there is no water. Right? Have, have you gotten to that point for righteousness where you are looking out into the world and seeing the sin of the world and you're going no more? Where, where you're just seeing how children are mistreated and wives and husbands and, and people groups are so mistreated just because of what they look like or how they act. That you can say no more to the wickedness of man that your body thirsts and your muscles ache. And when we do that, when we humble ourselves, and when we pray and fast, the Lord says, we shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In this, as we continue the progression, we get recognized that we are poor in spirit, our need for a Savior. We mourn because we see our sins. We exercise meekness because we cannot do it ourselves. We hunger and thirst for righteousness because we see the sin around us. But we do not point fingers and judge the world because of their sin. We show them mercy in spite of it. True mercy is looking at someone who is in the consequences of sin and having pity on their soul. So when we see someone in their folly and in their mistakes and all, what we should by flesh want to do, is point our finger and say, I told you so, or look at you, or you're such a mess. We stop and we say, I'm sorry. And we pray for them and we pick them up and we wipe the dirt off their face and we walk beside them through that journey because we have been there once before. Not a single person in this room can say that they were not an enemy of God. Not a single person in this room can say that we had not sinned against God. So for us to point fingers at someone because of their sin while we walk in righteousness is not the gospel. Our job is to look at those around us and say, may the Lord have mercy on your soul and act that out. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is oftentimes when you look at the children, because that's what Jesus did. In Matthew 18, Jesus called the little ones, and the disciples 
try to shoo them away. But he says, no, 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 don't hinder them. For you must be like a child to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You must be like one of these to see God. Right, and Jesus even puts a warning, do not hinder one of these children for it better be a millstone tied around your neck and you be thrown into the sea and drowned than you cause one of these little ones to stumble. Are we pure in heart? Is our intentions right? Are we willing to acknowledge where we stand? Romans 2, verse 15 and 16, basically summarizes, says that God has put his law on the hearts of men, and based on their conscience, they know right from wrong. And in the end, all will stand before God, and God will judge the heart. See, we can pretend to be righteous. We can pretend to walk in such a way that we look right, but on the inside, as Jesus called the Pharisees, we are an empty tomb full of dead men bones. But is our heart pure? Have we allowed the Holy Spirit to work in us to turn our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh? Right? I, I, I had this, I teach a, a class for Southeastern University, and uh, I was talking about being pure in heart. And I said, if you were walking out that door barefooted and your little bitty toe caught the metal door jam, what would be the first word out of your mouth? Deep conviction just rumbled through this auditorium. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I believe that's Luke 7, 45. It's not on your sheet. It just kind of popped in my head. Jesus says, it's not what a man eats that makes him unclean, but what comes out of him. So what is, what is abiding in your heart? What are you feeding your spirit? What music are you listening? What TV are you watching? What shows are you ingesting? What literature are you reading? Does it exemplify God or does it satisfy the joys of this world? Because... If the joy of the Lord's in you and you walk out that door with barefoot and you clip the edge of your pinky toe on that door and something more than ouch comes out. Might be you want to consider what you're ingesting. What's filling your heart. Right? And, and so this is what Jesus is challenging to because this is what God is looking at. This is truly what God is going to judge you by is the condition of your heart. And I think this is why he uses children, because most of them are so pure and so innocent that they can truly see God. But when we live in this world long enough, our hearts become corrupt, they become dark, they become saturated with which is innocent. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I had to learn a long time ago the difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. Because for a long part of my life, I was a peacekeeper. And you know what a peacekeeper does? They do anything to keep the peace. That's why the United Nations is called peacekeepers. They just throw food at people. 
because they want to pacify everyone to keep everyone satisfied. Does that accomplish anything? No. But being a peacemaker is willing to make decisive decisions, even at the feelings of others, because it is what is right. We are in desperate need of peacemakers in this world. Right? Because we have wanting to not offend. And there's a difference between judge being judgmental, even hypocritically judgmental, where you're looking at someone it's like, you're just blank, 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 blank. And I'm not big on labels. We'll get to that later. But where we are truly looking at someone and looking in their hearts and saying, what you're doing is wrong and you need to stop. And that can be a very hard conversation, but that is what God is calling us as peacemakers. It, yes, ma'am. A peacemaker is a person who will make a decisive decision to install peace where there is none. Peacemaker will make decisive decisions to make peace where there is none. This is a buildup. We, we, we've, we've begun with the inside, poor in spirit, recognizing our sin, restraining, restraining our power, seeking righteousness, becoming merciful. Now we're beginning to go outside, being pure in heart, making peace. And what happens next? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. The world will not like that you're living a righteous lifestyle. They're going to call you a prude. They're going to call you all sorts of names because they don't like the light that you're shining into it. You will lose friends over it. You will lose family over it. You might even lose your job over it. But if you are walking out the Christian life, do not be surprised if the world hates you for it. And that's what 10, 11, and 12 says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those when others revile around you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. And Jesus' answer to them, rejoice and be glad. Because that means you're on the right track. Jesus gives a strong warning in Luke chapter 14. And he says, unless you love me, more than your mother and more than your sisters and more than your spouse and more than your children. Yes, even your own life. You cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to read it. Luke 14. You want to flip there. Luke 14. I think it's worth reading. I'm not in a rush. Starting at verse 26, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother, right? And this would be contrary or sounds contrary to the fifth commandment, which is honor your mother and your father. His wife and his children and his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And this is a challenge for each and every one of us who want to be Christ's disciples. 
For which of you desiring to build a a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was unable to finish. What king going out to encounter uh, another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet and come against him with 20,000? And if not, while the others are yet greater way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Therefore, anyone who does not renounce all, and the Greek word therefore all is all that he has cannot be my disciple. Christianity comes with a cost. Christ, your his grace is not cheap. It costs God everything. Because it cost him Jesus. So you were bought with a price. So you are not your own. You belong to God. So we cannot live our life as unto ourselves, but we must live it as unto God. And this is what verse 13, 14, 15, 16 tells us. That we have a responsibility to be the salt of the world. That God has called us up and out of this world to live in a way in which we do something with it. Salt does two things. For those of us who've been around more than a couple decades probably know that salt is a great preservative. You would salt meat to keep it fresh longer. But for all of us, we know the value of salt. It adds flavor. So is your life adding flavor to the people around you? Or in other words, is your life influencing the people in your sphere? When you go to work and you go home and you go out to play, is your life influencing them or are they influencing you? Because do you are you still salty or have you lost your saltiness? And ultimately you are being trampled under feet or underfoot. I don't know how to, whatever. Do you see this picture? Jesus is saying you have one of two choices. You can either go out into the world and influence it for the kingdom, or you're thrown on the ground and you're trampled underfoot. And then the great example. Now, for us, we live in a world now with LED lights and big can lights and bright lights. But in the ancient world, you would have a light for the house. I have a short story. I was in Mexico on a missions trip uh, two and a half years ago. It was actually, actually it was September two years ago. It was uh, the day the earthquake struck Mexico City. Does anyone remember that being in the news? I was there. I felt it. Uh, that was scary. I was in a little bitty room, about a 20 by 20 room. There was a incandescent light in the middle. And the, the, nat- the indigenous people, the people of the, the village are there. And, and the interpreter and a couple of missionaries and I are here. And we're giving them audio Bibles. And all of a sudden, you kind of felt this swirling motion like you're sitting on a washing machine. And the little bitty light began to blink. And all the ladies who were in the house scurried out because they knew what was going on. But I'm from Florida, and I don't know what an earthquake is. No idea. Never been in one. I thought a train was driving by. 
it wasn't. It was an earthquake. So we scurried outside, and about a minute later, we went back inside and went back to work. But you can imagine all, all the light that this light has would be from this one light bulb. Its most effective place was hanging from the center of the room because that's where it would give all the light. It would be silly to put it in a corner or under a basket. So why do we hide ourselves away from the world when we're designed to be in the middle of it? Be the light of the world. And because ultimately it's not about us because it says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. We are called to good works. We're not just called to be bright, shiny, good-looking people, but people who do good things. Not for our own glory, but so that the whole world will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. I, I skipped like half of my uh, references. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, but I want to correct one. I put the wrong one on there. And it's under, uh, if you look down to the bottom, it's First John chapter 1. I typed in 19. There is no First John chapter 1 verse 19. It does not exist. It's supposed to be First John chapter 1 verse 9 which says, if we are we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and lead us into righteousness. So that was associated with blessed are those who mourn. So if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So we're going to take about the next um, 